Well, years ago, when my family and I lived in Texas, uh, we would venture down to Brownsville, Texas. Uh, There was actually some individuals that we were involved in missions with back then. But uh, also, we had some other benefits. There was a great fruit store down there. And of course, those of you who come from different parts of the country, usually where there's some good fruit, uh, you, you really appreciate that. Now, we have fruit here. And I'll tell you what, we just eat up in uh, squash and zucchini here. So I think we could be the zucchini state of the nation. But seriously, uh, you know, we have to have all of our fruit shipped in. But in some of these places where it's the Sun Belt and they have the fruit, uh, you just have magnificent fruit. And I remember we were there and... Uh, I wanted to buy some grapefruits. I think I wanted to buy some other fruit, but all they really had was grapefruit. So I bought the grapefruit, and when I bit into that grapefruit, it it was almost too sweet. I had never eaten such a sweet grapefruit. You know, I remember when I was little, my mother would actually put sugar on our grapefruit to kind of get rid of the sour taste. And this one here was, you know, you you I, I ate a number of them, but you probably couldn't keep eating them because they were so sweet. Well, we're going to talk about fruit a little bit in the eternal state. But it started in the Garden of Eden. That was a paradise. Originally, that was a paradise. And Adam and Eve were told that they could eat from any tree except one. And as they ate from those trees and We don't know exactly what kind of trees they were, what kind of fruit trees, but they were trees that we could eat from, they could eat from. And it must have been the most delicious. It must have been almost too sweet to eat until man sinned. And then man was banished from paradise. But as we come to the book of Revelation, we come to the very end. And so we've spent all this time in it, going to the uh, chapters 1 through 3, Christ speaking to the churches, and I think the church is now in the age that we're in. Chapter 4 all the way through chapter 18, we talked about the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation that will happen, and we went through all of the judgments. And of course, the church has been raptured before that, we believe. We believe that the church is already in heaven uh, when the tribulation begins. Chapter 19, the Lord will return. And he will defeat his enemies and Israel's enemies. And he will take those who are believers, both Jews and Gentiles, and usher them into the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So we've gone through that. And when we got to that point, that was the creme de la creme. That was the turning point, the return of Christ. And then the, the, the millennial kingdom. I don't think there's enough said about that today in today's preaching. It's spoken of all over the Old Testament. It is that thing that Israel is looking for. It's the thing that Israel even asked Jesus while he was there. When will your kingdom come? And of course, there will be that kingdom and we will reign with Christ there. But then we'll have the destruction of earth and heaven and we'll have the new heaven and the new earth. And then begins the part of Revelation that talks about heaven as the eternal state. And the new Jerusalem comes down. The new Jerusalem is that city that we believe that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come and take you to be with 
me and you will be there forever. And that's what we've been talking now about the eternal state. So when you go to your Bible and you go to Revelation 21 and chapter 22 and you want to look at the description of heaven, you are looking at the description of the new Jerusalem. Of course, the ultimate part of that is that the Lord will be there among his people. It emphasizes that more than three times, three times in one verse. And throughout all of these verses, we keep reading about that. But there are other features here today. We're going to learn about a river that's there. And that is the river of the water of life. We're going to learn about a tree that's there, and that is the tree of life, just like in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And we're going to see that there is no longer any curse, no longer any curse in the eternal state, and we'll also learn that we will serve him for all eternity. Revelation 22, let's pick it up again in verse 1. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice there's no sea. Notice, as we said earlier in the book of Revelation chapter 21, there's no sea. Where does this river come from? Where's the water source? Coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, showing the deity of Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Now it says, in the middle of the street, and uh, it's at this point there's a little bit of uh, controversy on whether that should go in verse 1 or whether it goes in verse 2. Some of the manuscript, Greek manuscripts have different opinions on that, but in the, in the end, it's the same thing. In the middle of the street, that's where the river is, we see that on either side of the river was the tree of life. It was bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants, that's the saints, that's all of us who are believers, will serve him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we embark upon these passages, I thank you for what you have done in our hearts, the work that you have done, the Holy Spirit revealing the reality of this. And Lord, if there was ever a time to study heaven and the eternal state, it's now, Father, as there's many things that preoccupy our thoughts, uh, Father, that make us anxious, but this is where we have peace. And this is going to be reality for all eternity. It's going to be heaven for all eternity. May we understand these things properly, Lord, as we think about the city is paradise regained. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all right, let's kind of work our way through these verses. And you know, on the one hand, a lot of it is self-explanatory, but on the other hand, what is the water of life? Will we be able to drink that water? Uh, We have an idea of what the tree of life is. Will we be able to eat from it? Or as some have suggested, do we have to eat of the tree of life daily in order to sustain our eternality? I don't think so, but we'll talk about that. And then in verse 3, when it talks about the bond servants, us, uh, the saints, will serve him. What will we do? 
Well, that's what we hope to find out. And first of all, let's talk about the water of life in verse 1. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And as we mentioned in verse 1, there is no sea. So think about this for a moment. You have to have sea. You have to have pretty much the wind. You have to have clouds. You have to have rain. If there's going to be any kind of agriculture or growth or eating from the ground on earth. That's called the hydrological cycle where you get the moisture from the sea. It's up in the clouds. The clouds come over the mountains and we look at the clouds and we say, oh no, it's going to be a cloudy day. That's a good thing because that's bringing moisture. And then the moisture drops itself, as you know here in Wyoming, as snow. So that's a good thing uh, when it melts. But anyway, uh, that's the hydrological cycle. And by the way, that is talked about in the Bible. Uh, Job chapter 36, verses 27 and 28 uh, we believe that Job was probably the first book ever written, even though that's it's not in the first place of our Bibles. I think it's the oldest book. And it says, For he draws up the drops of water, the evaporation. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. But we won't have that in the eternal state because there's no sea. But we won't need it. There's many things that are different in the eternal state. And I'm glad for it. There's no sun, no moon, no need for it anyway. Because God and the Lamb, they will illuminate this golden, diamond, crystal city, which is approximately 1,500 miles along each square, part of the square. And it's just as high as it is wide and as it is long. But it's there that we, there is water there. But it's coming from the throne of God. By the way, there's no temple there in heaven because God and the Lamb are its temple. And that's the whole idea and the concept of a temple anyway. It's the fellowship and the relationship with God. And we're going to have that in its most intimate detail. This is what's so great. The struggle we may now have, you know, are you getting up every day and having devotions? Well, mostly, you know, I know how busy it gets. And, well, you know what, we won't... Devotions, we will live devotions in heaven. We will be in the presence of the Lord. But this river will come from the throne. That'll be its source. Now, as we're thinking of that, what, what, is, what does that symbolize? It, and by the way, I do believe it is literal. We have every reason to believe it's literal. But there is also meaning. There's also symbolism in the literal. What's the symbolism from the river of the water of life coming from the throne? That's where the source of life has always come from. It doesn't come from sports. It doesn't come from things in this world. There are great things that we have, great blessings that we have, but life, life always comes from God. He says, I have come, Lord Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So if you're seeking life in anything else except the Lord, you're falling short as a believer. 
So it's the idea that this river is coming, it's proceeding from the throne of God. It's showing that God is its source of life in heaven. I love the fact that it says it's crystal clear. Everything in heaven is crystal clear that we've looked at to this point. Be it the diamond-colored walls, be it the streets of gold, or how about all of the gems that we looked at? They're so perfect, they're so pure, not like we have here, but in heaven they will be so clear, they'll be transparent so that the glory of God will emanate through all of it including this crystal clear river that's coming from the throne of God. Now, we've seen some crystal clear water. That's one of the things we can boast about here in Montana and Wyoming, uh, the western part. You get to see some crystal clear places. We were in Glacier National Park this summer and there in Montana, and we, we did see not only crystal clear water, but we saw blue water from the glaciers. But I tell you, the water that we're going to see coming from the throne of God is going to be a new type of crystal. And everything around it will be transparent. And the glory of God will be emanating from it. Well, as we take a look then at the water of life, let's go just a little bit deeper in its meaning. What is water? And you need water. You have to have water. Doctors today will tell you that you have to have water or you will become dehydrated. And all sorts of things can happen. You know, uh, just uh, over my lifetime, I've heard of so many different uh, adverse effects from people that were dehydrated. Had a woman in our church many, many years ago who they thought was having a heart attack. They took her to the hospital, and here she was dehydrated. It's for sustenance. It's for sustenance and refreshment. I mean, how about a cold glass of water on a hot day? It just isn't anything better. And, and you know, uh, I, I'm kind of like description of what the Bible talks about, that lukewarm water is no good. Don't, don't, give, me, don't give me a lukewarm water. I, I got to have it cold. And I'm sure you do as well. Well, it symbolizes sustenance and refreshment. There is eternal sustenance and refreshment in heaven. It will come from the source of God. One writes, It's pure, unpolluted, unobstructed flow symbolizes the constant flow of everlasting life from God's throne to God's people. The pure river seems to be symbolic of the refreshment and sustenance that God provides through eternal life, though it, like the city itself, is probably also a literal river, and of course a river that emanates the glory of God. Now just let me say real quick that this water, if you go to the book of Ezekiel, uh, you see Ezekiel talking about the millennial kingdom, There in the millennial kingdom, there will be a physical temple. There's a a millennial temple. There will be a tribulation temple. It's not there now, but there will be. Um, There's also a river in the millennium uh, flowing from the temple. But we're not talking about the millennium right now. We're beyond that. This is the eternal state. And, you know, we made a clarification uh, when it comes to the nations. We said in the millennial kingdom, the nations will come and they will be healed. There will be a healing there. We found out last week that there's going to be nations in the eternal state. Some people are confused and they think, oh, well, now we're talking about the millennial kingdom. No, there's differences. 
about the millennial kingdom. There's a temple there and a river. But in the eternal state, there is no temple because the Lord is its temple. And this is where the river will come. When we're talking about symbolism, we also do think of the Holy Spirit. And first of all, let me say, we think about the Holy Spirit's uh, spiritual life, salvation, One of my favorite passages is in John chapter 7. I will ask you to turn there. John chapter 7, look at verse 37. The reason why this is such a favorite passage of mine is because of its context. It's on the last day of the feast. And in this particular part, it was a very solemn and quiet formality. This is now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus, what? While it was quiet, while it was solemn, while everyone was quiet, Jesus stood up in the the middle of the church service while it was quiet and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Of course, if some today would do that, we would think that they were uh, had lost their mind. But this is the Son of God to the people of Israel. It probably couldn't be contained. He wanted to share with them the gospel through him. You know, we talked last week that the blessing of the nations, the blessing of Israel, is that the greatest Israelite was the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, Jesus said, and drink. And then he said this, He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow the rivers of living water. And of course, that's not only salvation, but that's a reference to the Holy Spirit and the life that the Holy Spirit is giving to you now. It's kind of interesting. We have to be careful that we walk with the Lord as believers This morning in Sunday school, they were talking about when Samson had his hair cut, lost his strength, spirit departed. He didn't know it. And he went out to shake himself and he didn't have his strength. I wonder how many believers don't know that they're not in fellowship with the Lord. Don't know that they're not yielding to the Holy Spirit. They say they're a Christian, but they're doing whatever they want. And there's no lives. There's no life, spiritual life. Uh, because they're not turning to the Lord to live their life. Well, it's these waters of life that the Holy Spirit produces in the believer. And that is what's going to happen in the eternal state. Now, let me just quickly say, we've learned an awful lot about the Father, God, the Lord Almighty in the book of Revelation. We've learned an awful lot about the Lamb, and that's what he's always called in the book of Revelation. We will never forget that he is our substitute. He's the Lamb forever. But we haven't necessarily seen a lot about the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. We know that there is a throne, and on the throne is the first person of the Godhead, the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Also, the Son is there, the second person of the Trinity. We know the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, but he's not mentioned a whole lot. Let me explain some of that. Number one, he's the author 
of the book of Revelation. And just like other passages and books of the Bible, of course, he authored, authored by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't mention himself the, uh, as prevalent as the other members. In fact, his ministry is to promote Christ and to lift Christ up and not point to himself. By the way, that's one of the problems when churches start to highlight and emphasize nothing but the spiritual gifts, particularly the sign gifts and speaking in tongues. And what's wrong with that picture? That's not what the Holy Spirit's doing. Now, he gave us spiritual gifts and we're to use them. But he's pointing us constantly to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. So one of the reasons why we don't see the Spirit so prevalent in the book is because his ministry is to point to Christ. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. By the way, I'm so thankful for that. This morning, this isn't a matter of you coming here with an evening with Joel or an evening with Daryl. You've come here this morning to hear the ministry of the Word of God. And as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. As a pastor, I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will use me and teach me and then give me the ability to teach you. That's the Spirit's ministry here in the church. And he's pointing to Christ. So when we go to the book of Revelation and we don't see him so prevalently, we shouldn't say, well, that just means that there's only two members of the Trinity. No, it means that the third person of the Trinity wrote this book. And if there is, and, and, and to be honest with you, I haven't heard... You know, anyone really saying this, but as I'm thinking this, this water of life could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. So we have the Father and the Son on the throne, and coming is the coming from the throne is the water of life. And, and I think in some sense it's speaking about the Spirit's ministry. And we'll get a chance to talk about that a little later. But let me just read this. Perhaps, perhaps... All saints in the eternal state will not only have the Spirit, but will have him in his fullness to unite us in an eternal relationship with the Father. The Spirit is always there. He's even there in the tribulation. Even though we know the restrainer, probably the Holy Spirit, when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit in one sense goes with. But the Holy Spirit is God and he's omnipresent and he has a ministry. And, and if there's any salvation at all, which there is during the tribulation, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit's work is, is not done. It'll be in the millennial kingdom. There will be salvation in the millennial kingdom. And I, I, I think it'd be just as obvious to say, well, the Holy Spirit, who's God, is going to be in heaven. And, and what's his connection? Well, I think perhaps it's, it's the ministry to the believer again. It doesn't stop, but it's a perfect ministry. He's not dealing with those with a sinful nature anymore. He's not dealing with those who will quench him on a regular basis. He's not dealing with those who will, you know, offend him on a regular basis as Christians. He's dealing with perfected saints. And perhaps we see the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps... The experience of the water of life is that symbolism of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
getting to the big question, the one we all want to know. Can we drink from the water? I don't know. It doesn't say so, but it's quite possible. There will be, we think, eating and drinking in the eternal state. We see in some instances that Jesus himself ate, though we had a glorified body. Um, So we believe that we will be able to eat. There won't necessarily be a necessity to survive. It'll be just for the sheer pleasure of it. And I'm sure since there's no curse, there's no calories. Calories are the curse right now. But will we be able to drink from the water? Well, it's possible that we will. Um, not to keep us sustained for eternal life, but it'll be a benefit. Uh, it probably will be one of the most pleasurable things that, that we've ever tasted there in heaven. And it, it may even have some spiritual benefit. Um, you, you know what I, I, I kind of lean towards is the idea that if you, when you eat from the tree of life or the water of life, um, it, it's the most tasteful thing, but also too... Uh, it's the idea that maybe it helps you with a full understanding of spiritual things. Uh, in other words, uh, you get it. You taste it. You taste life. You taste life coming from the source of God. And spiritually, it's all connecting. Your spiritual synapses are all popping. I don't know. That's, I'm, I'm really going beyond what the scriptures say. But one, one might be able to, to uh, understand that. That's the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God. And then verse 2, the tree of life. And as I said here in the middle, it's hard to say in the Greek without the punctuation whether this phrase should be included with verse 1 or verse 2. In a way, it doesn't matter. It says in the middle of its street, and it's talking about the river. So here you have this golden crystal clear street. You have the throne of God. And in the middle of the street is this crystal clear river, the water of life. And then he mentions on either side of the river was the tree of life. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. Now, how does that work out? For something that appears so beautiful, there is a little bit of difficulty knowing exactly what this is. Some have supposed that this is not referring to a single tree but a series of trees. And one of the reasons is is because in the Greek, it doesn't have an article to make it the tree. It is a tree. And so some people think that perhaps we're talking about trees on both sides, on either side of the river. Um, That's possible except for one thing. In the Greek, when you see the word tree, it's in the singular. That's how it is in the Greek. It is singular. It's hard to say that he would be referring to a grove of trees when he is referring to tree, singular in the Greek. Also, if you go back up to verse 1, you have the same construction. Then he showed me not the river, but a river. And it's kind of interesting because I've never heard anybody espouse the view, well, heaven is full of a lot of rivers. They always talk about the river that comes from the throne of God. So even though it doesn't have an article and and it is in the singular, that's, that's, I think, the way that we should take it. Of course, if we take it as one tree, how do you get one tree on both sides of the river? Well, some, to explain it, 
even some good men, good commentaries, would suggest that the river divides. It comes to the tree, and then also it go, it, it diverts into two, and it goes around the tree. You know, it's a possibility in the ideas that one could come up with. The only thing is, is it doesn't say that the river is on both sides of the tree. It says the tree is on both sides of the river. So the other explanation, which I do lean to, would be it is a magnificent tree, one tree in the middle of the river, and it's so large that its branches are on both sides of the river. And you can imagine the fruit that's coming from them. Now, you could say, how can you have a tree in the river? Well, we can have that in this life. We've, we've seen trees in, in coming from rivers. Um, we've also seen trees coming from rocks. You go over the Black Hills, and the tree are growing, trees are growing right out of the rocks. And my stepfather used to be so frustrated. He'd try to plant trees here in Gillette and had a difficult time over the years planting trees. And we'd go over there, the Black Hills, to hunt, and we'd see a tree growing out, the, out of a rock, and he'd just shake his head. That's because God is in control. What, you know, if, if there's a river without sea, couldn't there be a tree without soil? No, I don't know. Maybe there is soil. Maybe there's heavenly soil there in the midst of that. I, I, I don't know, but it's very possible. And the description seems to be saying is that the tree is there and it's so large. And, and, and if it's on both sides of the river, one might imagine it's in the middle of the river. John Wolvert writes, The picture is that the river flows through the middle of the city. And the tree is large enough to span the river so that the river is in the midst of the street and the tree is on both sides of the river. It would appear that the river is not a broad body of water, but a clear stream sufficiently narrow to allow for this arrangement. Now, we have another little conundrum, and that is the fruit. It says here that it's bearing 12 kinds of fruit, but I've just suggested that there's one tree. You know, by this point, it shouldn't matter. We're talking about heaven here. We're talking about God's divine new creation, the new Jerusalem. And instead of having 12 trees or more producing their fruit, why couldn't you have a tree that each month would produce a different fruit? That's just like God. And notice the number 12. And we've been seeing 12 in the new Jerusalem. We see the 12 tribes of Israel written on the gates of the new Jerusalem. We see the 12 apostles. Their names are written on the foundation. So we have Israel. We have the church. And then last week we talked about we have all the others that aren't included in those groups who are saved are the nations. And 12 is kind of like it's just a, it's a complete number. It's all of it. And so this would be a, a, a complete number, and I wonder what kind of fruit that is. It'll be great. It'll be better than grapefruits from Brownsville, I'll tell you that. And it yields its fruit every month. Maybe, it, maybe it's a tree that every, uh, that every month it bears fruit, and maybe it's bearing all 12 of the fruit uh, at the same time. And then it says, And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
And I want to talk about that for just a moment. I want to talk about that because the idea is, well, if the nations are being healed, then this is referring to the millennial kingdom. But I don't think it's saying they come there and they're getting healed. Just like I don't think when it says, and every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. It doesn't mean we'll be crying throughout all eternity and God will come over and wipe the tears. It means when you get to heaven, you will never cry because every tear has been wiped from your eyes. And when the nations get to the eternal state, all of those who are saved, they are already healed. They are already healed and glorified. But I want to just go back for just a moment and just talk about the tree of life just quickly. Now, this was mentioned, the tree of life was mentioned in the book of Genesis. And now it's mentioned in Revelation. Someone said it's like the bookends of paradise. You begin with paradise in Genesis, and now you have paradise regained in the book of Revelation. Well, quickly, turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, a couple of scriptures we want to look at, very familiar, I'm sure. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Drop down to verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. It's paradise. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, here's more than one tree. Here's trees in the plural. This is a, a, an orchard of paradise, an orchard of these fruit trees, and they can go anywhere they want. And where do you find them? Hanging around the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, Satan tempts Eve. She eats and she gives to Adam and he eats. And (laughs) here we are. We find ourselves in a world full of chaos because of the curse. We find ourselves in a world full of sickness, disease, and death, which wasn't in the original paradise, but is here now because they sinned. But I want to say that's the only tree that they could not eat from. They could eat from the tree of life before that. However, after they sinned, they could no longer eat from the tree of life. Drop down to chapter 3, verses 22 and 20 through 24. Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The problem is, is that he would live forever in his sinful state. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden, out of paradise, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken I might add, with thorns and thistles. And he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, these angels. 
and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Had they eaten from the tree of life, there'd be no sense even preaching. I wouldn't even be preaching today because we would never have the hope of heaven where the tree of life is with paradise regained. But God is in control even when man sins. God is in control. God doesn't cause his sin. But he is so sovereign that even though man sins, God's purposes will not be thwarted. And here we are reading of what's going to happen us to us in the very end. We'll be in heaven. We'll be in paradise. We'll be by the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is mentioned numerous times in the book of Revelation. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. There's a mention of the Holy Spirit. To the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which, in the, which is in the paradise of God. I think Jesus is speaking of the eternal state, is he not? That's where the tree of life is. It's the paradise of God. It's paradise regained, or maybe even better than paradise re- regained, since it's the new Jerusalem. It's the new paradise. But... It will be granted to us to eat of the tree of life. Now, we know now that Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat because if they ate, they would have remained eternally in that state of sin. Because he prevented them, because Christ came and died for our sins, because as believers we've placed our faith in Christ, we have eternal life and we will be in heaven in the eternal state. We are going to be able to eat of the tree of life now. This has caused some to say, well, maybe we have to eat from the tree of life daily to sustain our eternal life. Let me just say that it never says that in the scriptures. Some speculate that, but it just doesn't seem to fit. It's not about the tree of life. It's about God. It's about salvation. It's about life coming from him. When you trust Christ as your savior, you are now experiencing eternal life and you don't have to eat from the tree of life. And if he's going to keep you in this life, he's certainly going to keep you in the next life. And so I don't believe that we have to be kept by eating every day. Oh, what's, what's wrong with Daryl? You know, he hasn't come out of his mansion in weeks. Well, he didn't eat from the tree of life. And He's got to go get tested for COVID. <laughs> There's none of that. There's none of that. There, and by the way, you remember last week? The gates will never be shut. We'll never be quarantined again. We'll never be locked down again. So no, eternal life is given to a believer by the grace of God through Christ's work on the cross. It is never based on our works either to obtain it or to keep it. So then will we be able to eat from the tree of life? I think we will, just as Adam and Eve were able to eat from the tree of life at will. We will not have to eat it to sustain our eternal life. However, it appears that we will be able to eat from it. And it may produce again some ultimate heavenly enjoyment. Oh my word, the fruit. With, again, I think, it, it can't just be physical, it's got to be spiritual. There's, there's spiritual understanding when we eat from it. We'll probably, and I don't know, we'll probably taste eternal life. Or could. 
And, and we'll think of, yes, yes, it's the life that's from God. It's the life that was given to every believer who trusts in Christ. It's for all eternity. And we understand it even in a clear way. John Walver writes, the intimation of this passage is that while it is not necessary for believers in the eternal state to sustain life in any way by physical means, they can enjoy that which the tree provides, whatever it may be. And then, of course, you have the leaves of the tree, which are healing for the nations. And as I said before, I don't think it's that the, the nations will be sick. The, the nations can't be sinful. There is no sin. There's no tears in, in the eternal state. So they are already healed. But again, it may have some meaning for them, some spiritual meaning. And they taste it, and it will be just a wonderful taste if, if they even eat the leaves. And it will have some correlation with the spiritual meaning. It says, this does not mean healing is still needed. Rather, it symbolizes the healing that has already occurred at the end times and descending of the eternal city. This probably refers both to physical healing, that there's no hunger and disease now, And spiritual healing in that all are in right relationship. This is heaven. Three times it will say in the book of Revelation that there is no sinful person allowed in heaven. And of course we already know in the book of Revelation we've already dealt with that. All of those who have rejected Christ have been called up to the great white throne of judgment. Everyone at the great white throne judgment then has been punished and thrown into the lake of fire. No believer will be brought to the great white throne judgment. And so they're all dealt with. It's all gone. And so the nations are healed. And this will be an eternal reminder of their healing. Quickly, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. And once again, notice there's a, an emphasis here on the throne. He keeps telling us about the throne of God. What do you think heaven's about? Is it about the golden streets? Is it about the uh, diamond-colored wall? Is it about even the color of the crystal clear river? No, it's about God and the Lamb, the throne, the presence of God. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Again, he tells us. How many times has he told us in these passages? And then he will say, and his bondservants will serve him. Quickly, as we talk about the curse, what is the curse? Well, from from there in the garden, paradise, when they sinned, it was the curse of sin, the curse of death because of that sin, the curse of separation from God, although God gave his son, in order to bring man back to a relationship with himself. But all of that is removed now. There will no longer be any curse. And uh, someone, someone was saying, well, do you, think, do you think someone might sin in heaven and be cast out? No, there's no curse. There's no sin. And who's going to keep us in heaven? Who's going to keep us without sin? God. And we will be without sin and we will have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It will be heaven. We will be perfect forever because when we see him, we will be like him. I don't know about you. I'm starting to get more and more excited about the possibility of that. John MacArthur writes, The curse, meaning sorrow, pain, and especially death, 
The curse on humanity and the earth as a result of Adam's and Eve's disobedience will be totally finished. God will never have to judge sin again. Sin will never be judged again since it will never exist in the new heaven and the new earth. And then he says, after about the throne again, which we've discussed numerous times, he says, and his bond servants will serve him. Now, who are the bond servants? Are we talking about a fourth group? We have Israel, saved Israel. We have the church. We have the nations. Is this another group of bond servants? No. All saints are the bond servants. If you look up the word bond servants in the Bible, it's the Greek word doulos. It literally means slave. Now, that may be horrific for us to hear, but it's a beautiful thing in the scriptures. It's a beautiful thing. It means we are his possession. I don't want to be owned by anybody but him. We are his possession. He's the one who provides for us. He's the one whom we serve, and that's what we want to serve. The term bondservant in the New Testament starts to become a very exalted term. When Paul writes his epistle, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James, Jude, a bondservant. It starts to become this elevated, I'm, I'm a doulos of the Lord. I'm a slave to the Lord. I'm his bondservant. I serve him and him alone. And Peter said, what do you expect? Should we serve man? Or as a bondservant, should I serve God? You decide. I've already made my mind up, he says. And so this is the title that we will have. And, and what I like about this is even though many times it refers to those who are in ministry in the New Testament, either an apostle or someone who's a helper of an apostle, in Revelation 1.1, the very beginning verse, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants. Well, who are they? That's us. All saints are going to be bondservants. To show his bondservants what? The things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, Dulos, John. And so we are going to serve the Lord in heaven. We, we may eat a little bit from the tree of life. We may drink a little bit from the water of life. We may visit one another in this heavenly new Jerusalem cube. We may have other things to do, but we will definitely be serving the Lord. How? What will we be doing? Well, the word serve here is latruo, and which is often a reference to priestly service. And so you think of the Old Testament and the priestly service. By the way, you remember all of those, those jewels that they show in heaven? It's very possible that those are the same colors and jewels referred to on the high priest's breastplate. Eight of them are identifiable as that. The other four, because the change of names and the change of colors down through the ages, we're not quite sure. But if that's the way it turns out, I'm not going to be surprised. Priestly service. Now we've been told that throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.6. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. 
5, chapter 5. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon earth. And by the way, that does also refer to the millennial kingdom. But we're seeing that there are some things that, yes, are in the millennial kingdom, but they're going to find their eternal reality in heaven forever and ever. Chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Let me just quickly show you something. So we're going to serve him. We're going to be priests. We're going to have these priestly duties. Certainly going to include worship, praise. And I think we're going to reign with him. In fact, that's what it says. Drop down to verse 5. We'll, we'll talk about it next week, Lord willing. It says, verse 5, And there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, just like it says that Jesus Christ will reign forever, the first thing you say when you're studying future things of the Bible is, okay, he's going to reign for a thousand years. I thought the Bible said he's going to reign forever and ever. Yes, he is. He's going to reign for a thousand years and continue to reign forever and ever. It says the saints are going to reign with him. Yes, for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom and forever and ever. So we will have priestly duties. We, in some sense, will reign with him. We will serve him forever and ever. Now, let me just make a few applications here. This is fantastic what we have here, the paradise regained. And that's enough. I could stop right now, and I believe that's enough for you to take home and think about and be blessed by. I know I have just been thoroughly blessed in studying this. But let me make some observations here. I want to revisit this idea about the separate groups very quickly. It will be these separate groups that it will be Israel, it will be the church, and it will be the nations, probably the tribulation saints who are not part of the the church. It will probably be the millennial saints who are not part of the church or necessarily Israel. And it's probably this group who's ever not part of Israel and the church will be part of the nations. And so those are the three groups. And they will be separate but unified, separate that Twelve names of the tribes of Israel are there on the gates forever. Twelve apostles' names are on the foundation stones forever. Here's all these nations forever. But there's a unity. You know what the unity is? We will be God's people. Again, I turn our attention up to Revelation chapter 21. And in verse 3, when this all started, when the new Jerusalem came down, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, which is himself. The tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And John's saying, Yeah, I know he's going to dwell among them, but, you know, not in, in super detail. Yes, John. He says, And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That will be the unifying thought that we are all God's people, those who have placed their faith in Christ. So there are these separate groups. But 
as we learned about that the leaves of the trees are for the healings of the nations, I think that is what's going to be the meaning throughout eternity, that God even healed the non-Jew. God even healed those who are not a part of the church. We have this group called the nations, and they are the nations that they have been included, they have been incorporated, and they have been healed. And when you look at those leaves, the nations are going to declare, you know, hallelujah, as they see that they're incorporated. Just as the church looking at the 12 names of the apostles, just as Israel looking at the 12 tribes. So these separate groups, but I wanted to emphasize the healing of the nations. Now, I would like to visit the idea of the Holy Spirit again. We've already talked about the Holy Spirit, and he is mentioned in the book of Revelation, but not as much as God and not as much as the Father. This is typical of the Holy Spirit who promotes the Son in his writings, even though we do learn about the Holy Spirit from the scriptures which the Holy Spirit wrote. So in chapters 2 and 3, every time there's a letter to the church, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit and the church go hand in hand. We go on in the book of Revelation, and we, we find uh, at times John is carried away in the Spirit, and if that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. We also find that there's something to be said by the Spirit. Down in 17, as we get to the end of this chapter, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. The Holy Spirit, that's his ministry. Always beckoning to the sinner. Always encouraging the believer. So let me say this, perhaps all saints in the eternal state will not only have the Spirit, but will have him in his fullness unlike we have never experienced here on earth. If so, if so, his ministry might be to unite us in an eternal relationship with the Father and Son, that they may be one even as we are one. And that's carried out by the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and all saints in heaven one with the Father, one with the Son. But he also, I'm sure, will be able to help us perform our priestly duties in the power of the Spirit. Now, let me move to saintly service. It's very possible, again, and I, I don't often do this, but we are speculating here. You know, many things are carried from this life, the millennial kingdom, into the eternal state. So even though heaven is going to be completely new, a new earth, new heaven, new Jerusalem, uh, many things are going to be different. Some things remain the same. In other words, the idea of Israel is going to remain the same. That's eternal. God's plans weren't just for 101, the earth 101. It's for eternity, and his purposes are eternal. And what started in the beginning of the paradise of God in Genesis will be in the paradise in the book of Revelation. 
There are many things. The church, we see that. We see the priesthood. We see that involved in carrying over. And we've mentioned many other things. The tree of life is carried over. So what if in heaven part of your priestly ministry would be the spiritual gifts that you had while you're here on earth. Now, I, this may not be the case. And if we're in heaven and it's not the case, you can, you can rebuke me. But I'm just thinking, how are we going to serve him? Well, is it possible that we might serve him similarly in the way that we are now? Every believer has spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts that you have, you are to be using. Your, those spiritual gifts is what is building up the church, uh, even evangelizing to bring other people in the church. Once they're in the church, to edify them. All of the spiritual gifts are used for that and we're to be using them. What if in heaven we're going to be using those in a glorified way? I don't know. But if that's true, wouldn't it be very, very embarrassing if we, if we have these spiritual gifts in heaven and we go, thank you, Lord. Thank you for these spiritual gifts. I've never had them on earth. And the Lord says, yes, you did. I gave them to you, but you never used them. The point is, regardless whether there will be the carrying out of spiritual gifts in heaven and And uh, I don't believe that's heresy. I'm not promoting it as dogma. It's just a a suggestion. But one thing is for certain. We are to use our spiritual gifts now. And whether we have them in heaven or not, it doesn't matter. We're to be using them now. And it still will be embarrassing if the Lord said, let's take a look at how you've used the spiritual gifts I gave you on earth. I gave you those to bring people to Christ. I gave you those to build up the church. I gave you those to encourage the body and edify the body and grow so that you'd be able to stand in a world that has turned its back on God, in a world that is chaotic because it's changed its values. It's gotten away from biblical values. But you have those spiritual gifts to stand And to help others to stand. Not just yourself. It's not about you only. It's about you helping everyone else to stand. Oh, there's a believer and he's not standing. We got to go get him. We got to go encourage him. We got to go bring him back. That's what your spiritual gifts are used for. And so, perhaps one of the strongest applications is, regardless if the Spirit dwells us in heaven, regardless if we have spiritual gifts that we utilize in heaven that are perfect and powerful, regardless of that, let's make sure that we're using our spiritual gifts now and in this life, and maybe we can lead more people to the future and new paradise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word Thank you for the picture of heaven. Thank you for the hope that it gives a 91-year-old father in a hospital bed waiting to have surgery. Should that surgery go awry, it will only be blessing. But we think of the difficult times that we face now, whether self-imposed or not, whether true or not, whether anxious or not. Father, it just doesn't matter. 
We're going to be standing by the tree of life someday. We're going to be drinking from the water of life. We're going to be ministering in your presence forever. Oh God, would you shape us? Would you mold us? Would you use us now? Would, would people be able to come up to us and say, why aren't you worried? Why aren't you fretting? Because my mind is heavenly minded and I'm thinking of the paradise of God in which I'm going to spend eternity in his presence. May that be our heart, our mind, our thoughts, our motivation. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.